Welcome to Trine Days, The Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce Totoris. With us is Janet Phelan, a professional journalist who's been writing about the biological weapons agenda for 20 years. Her articles on this issue have appeared in Activist Post, New Eastern Outlook, Infowars, and elsewhere. Since 2004, Janet's been writing exclusively for independent media. Her articles previously appeared in the Los Angeles Times, We Magazine, Orange Coast Magazine, and other publications. Janet is the author of the groundbreaking expose, Exile. Her new book, At the Breaking Point of History, How Decades of U.S. Duplicity Enabled the Pandemic, is available at trinday.com and other fine places. Janet and Chris, it's great to be with you both. Great to be here. Thank you so much for hosting this, both of you. Thank, thank you, Janet, for, for coming on. You know, it's, uh, we really appreciate it. This is called The Journey. It's uh, about the journey that we all have to take, um, you know, once we're commit, uh, confronted with uh, other material than what we learned in school and whatnot. I had the good fortune of my father told me some stuff that I didn't understand, uh, you know, when I was, uh, well, 19, the day before my 20th birthday. And this was in 1969. So you know, I've had a long time on this journey to look at this stuff. And now we're seeing folks that are, you know, uh, taking this journey in, in a shorter amount of time. And so what, uh, what started you on your journey to the uh, uh, conspiratorial side, you might say? Back in uh, 2001, there was an attack, a nearly fatal attack on a family member, which uh, graduated to a fatal, a lethal attack. And um, I previously actually wrote a book about what happened to her. It's entitled Exile. Um, and uh, based on the, the, the situation, what happened to her as I began to move to try to protect her as much as I possibly could, uh, there were police reports, there was judicial action, or actually inaction. Um, there were FBI reports. I, I just went, I went all the way uh, up the chain of command. And uh, based on what happened to her, it, it altered me irrevocably. Um, I, I realized, and it becomes uh, uh, impossible reading exile to understand anything else in terms of the scenario here it was obvious to me that that there was a concerted government uh, agenda to make her dead now why would that be why would an a retired clinical psychologist from southern california be the subject of such a, a sort of operation and my book exile takes you through uh, the scenario what happened there's a lot of documentation in the book uh ju judicial records police reports etc all of which point inexorably towards uh a, a government inter involvement here so based on what happened to her as things uh, unfortunate things began to happen to me 
as I tried further and further to protect her, I really had to revise my entire understanding of what America was. But I had grown up in a family where my father was an investigative reporter. I already knew that some things had gone a very wrong in our country. Uh, you know, Kennedy assassination comes to mind uh, during the period of time where this thing was happening with my mother. I also 9-11 happened, which obviously to me was uh, a big red flag uh, that something was going on that was not uh, constitutionally supported. Uh, that was the beginning of my rabbit hole. So if this can happen to one person, if one person can be for reasons that are discussed later on in Exile, by the way, can be singled out and murdered, what does that say about America? What does that say about our rights? Uh, what were you doing at the time? Were you being a reporter? Or your, your father was an investigative reporter. What were you doing at the time? I wasn't working as a reporter at the time. I did have uh, those skills. I had previously published in a number of publications, but I wasn't at that time. But uh, I certainly knew how to do it. And, and so that's where my life changed irrevocably. Exiled, that's available on Amazon and other. Right stores. now, it's only available at the book patch, thebookpatch.com. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. So the anthrax thing happened around 2001. It certainly yeah. did, October 2001, I believe, right? Right. So were you looking at that at the time or? or Oh, not, no, not at that time. I was desperately trying to save my mother's life. My reporting on bioweapons, I think, began around 2004. Actually, uh, I lost my last uh, mainstream gig in media through an effort to uh, document what I was beginning to understand uh, could very well be a pandemic delivery system, which is actually discussed uh, extensively in my new book at the Breaking Point of History. I was at that point doing a weekly column for the Santa Monica Daily Press, and I walked over to City Hall and uh, made a Public Records Act request for some what uh, I thought should be available infrastructure records. And within six hours, I was uh, terminated from the Santa Monica Daily Press. I received a phone call from the editor. Uh, actually, she was extremely upset. Uh, she said she did not authorize me to ask question, infrastructure questions and that I was, and this is a direct quote, and this is important, I think. She said, I was endangering her position as editor of the Santa Monica Daily Press by asking these questions. So I hightailed it over to the uh, newspaper office to try to talk this over with her, but she wasn't gonna see me. In fact, nobody would talk to me. I filed my most recent story, which was never printed. And from that point on, I uh, no longer seem to be employable in mainstream media. Well, I, 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 reporters ask questions, isn't that what they do? That's a question that actually uh, needs to be asked and asked and asked at this point in time, because 
when one looks at the kinds of questions and the kinds of reporting that is going on now, one uh, would wonder what reporters are actually doing. They seem to be functioning more and more as scribes. Uh, so if somebody, a powerful person says something, then the reporter writes it down and reports it. But the kinds of questions that, uh, that we need to ask, uh, not only now in the public health emergency we find ourselves in, but that we need to ask on a daily basis seem to be missing uh, from the vocabulary of most reporters. So you started looking at this in, in 2004. What, what's been one of the most shocking things that you've come across? Well, there's been a number of shocking things. I realized uh, fairly early on, I was scanning the USA Patriot Act and uh, my eyes lit uh, upon uh, this section 817, which is the expansion of the biological weapons statute in which the US gives itself immunity from violating its own biological weapons laws. Now, that's actually a very big deal because what that means is that the US government can deploy, uh, develop, a stockpile biological weapons. Now, later on, uh, there was a further, shall we say, uh, modification of this law under President Trump when he signed CISA, Critical Infrastructure Security Act, I believe. Also included in the act was a clause which said there was no private, there was no longer any private right, right of action under infrastructure laws, which meant that uh, should there be an attack through the infrastructure, which is part of the thesis of my book, uh, we, we as citizens can't do anything about it. What we're seeing is an ultimate and final separation between uh, the citizens who are supposed to be sovereign, we know that, and the government, where the government can, can stockpile and deploy these weapons and we as citizens can't do a darn thing about it. So uh, that was pretty shocking. Bioweapons are not just a, a United States thing. They're an international uh, uh, there phenomenon. Is, yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And actually with the, the development of research capabilities and findings about the human genome project, uh, the, the situation with bioweapons has taken a quantum leap forward because uh, biological weapons can now be uh, uh, tailored to affect individuals, uh, races. The whole situation has become far more complex and more, um, more, much more high tech. Countries, many countries have been suspect in terms of, of developing biological weapons. The US in, I believe it was 69, President Nixon unilaterally declared that the US was, was going to abandon any 
offensive biological weapons program that it may have had. And at that point, a number of other nations followed suit and there came into existence in the early 70s an international treaty called the Biological Weapons Convention. Since the treaty has been launched, there have been numerous concerns that other countries have engaged in uh, developing and producing biological weapons, which are banned by the treaty. One of the really unfortunate, and again, shocking things about this treaty is that it has absolutely no teeth. There is no way to, there are no clauses, there are no parts of the treaty that would authorize any sort of verification that the countries who have signed onto the treaty are indeed complying with its mandates and that there's no way to enforce the treaty. So, uh, and this is very peculiar in the world of disarmament. Other treaties have mechanisms. The Biological Weapons Convention does not. Right. It, now, biological weapons, you know, um, Oh, we think of uh, World War One and stuff, and and we think of uh, you know ones that are, are going to kill right away. But actually, there's there's a uh, kind of biological weapon that that's basically just uh, supposed to enter into the uh, system and just kind of debilitate, you know, and, and and over over a long period of time. Exactly, there are entirely different strategies. And um, one thing I want to bring up, which I think is, is, is one of those questions that we need to be asking that people are not asking now, is how would you know the difference between a biological weapons attack and a pandemic? Uh, well, you would know what the media tells you, but other than that, how would you know? No, there, yeah, there's well, lots of lots of players with with lots of agendas out there so it's it's very hard for you know us to really determine as a, as a person on the street what what's going on well, right. well let, let, let's talk about the elephant in the room um covid you know what what's your what's your thoughts on it I, you know i look at it i think there's a real disease there where it came from i don't know and it, and at this point in time it, it doesn't matter and actually uh, there could be uh, several different variants out there. Uh, some of them uh, could have been, uh, you know, come about naturally. Some of them could have come about unnaturally. And you you have an intelligence uh, parlance of, of a thing. You go you go paint a town. In other words, you go take some biological uh, weapon into some area and, and, and paint a town. So, I mean, you have all kinds of um, scenarios that we could have no idea of what's going on. What are your thoughts? Uh, my thought when COVID hit in a, on a large scale back in uh, 2020 was that I needed to get a book together and get it published as quickly as possible because the history of the US's, uh, shall we say, uh, violations of the Biological Weapons Convention, the history of the US's disregard for the Nuremberg Code, for the rights of individuals 
to to say no to experiments being done on them. Uh, the the history here is really rotten to the core. Many people now seem to be in sort of a daze. I mean, government says wear a mask. The government says wear two masks. The government says this. The government says that. And a lot of people are sort of scrambling around, uh, trying to uh, obey or to, or to question or or they just. I think people are very upset by what's happening, and I think people are largely in the dark as to the nature of the history. Uh, shortly before the attacks of September 11th and also the then the the anthrax mailings of October of, of 2001, a, uh, a protocol was presented to this Biological Weapons Convention in Geneva, which would have erased the, the difficulties posed by no verification, no enforcement. This ad hoc protocol had been worked on by a committee for a number of years and would have resolved the issue of the Biological Weapons Convention being absolutely toothless. Well, that protocol was what well, was the United States under, under the leadership of, of UN Ambassador John Bolton, who got up and walked out of the convention boycotting the protocol. U.S. has enormous weight, and due to that boycott, six months later, we had uh, the anthrax attacks, which potentially uh, there could have been uh, United Nations uh, concern. Uh, possibly a team could have been sent. You know, there could have been an investigation, but not with the boycott in place. So, so basically, because Bolton stood up at this uh, convention and walked out, uh, the UN wasn't able to investigate the anthrax uh, attack in 2001 in the U.S. Is that well, it wasn't just Bolton. You know, he led the State Department delegation, and the entire State Department delegation got up and walked out. So the U.S. was saying, no way are we going to do this. And this had... Uh, the effect of derailing any sort of approval the ad hoc protocol could have gotten. So yes, it is entirely possible that should the ad hoc protocol have passed, that there might have been uh, a cons uh, an investigation of the anthrax attacks other than what the FBI put together at that time. That investigation by the FBI is also discussed uh, to some degree in my book. The, the FBI uh, refused to look at a couple of labs uh, where the same strain, it's called the Ames strain of the abdrex that was used in the mailings. It wasn't only Fort Dietrich, it was also lodged at Battelle Lab and also at Dugway Proving Ground. But the FBI decided sort of unilaterally that they weren't going to uh, bother with those two places. And th there is a lot of concern uh, concerning the uh, nailing of Bruce Ivins as the anthrax mailer. Now, interestingly enough, uh, unfortunately enough, Bruce Ivins committed suicide, so we're told, 
uh, right before he could be arrested. Now, there are some interesting things about that suicide as well. I don't know if it's still possible to find this article online, although at the time uh, that Bruce Ivan succumbed, it certainly was uh, that the fact was that Bruce Ivins, who apparently overdosed on Tylenol, he decided with all these bioweapons, he was a Fort Detrick researcher with all these bioweapons at his disposal, he chose to kill himself with Tylenol. He was actually taken to the hospital and began to improve. He began to rally. And it was reported in the press at that time that a decision was made. No attribution was given here. A decision was made to pull Ivans off of life support. Mm. Now, that to me raises a lot of questions. And those questions were uh, not followed up on. Uh, this was reported in the press. I don't even know if it's possible to find that article anymore. So Bruce Ivans died. And, and immediately the FBI closed their case. Right. Well, so, you know, from, from my uh, recollection of the time, you know, just going through that, it, what I got was, well, it was kind of a Keystone Cops thing that the FBI, I mean, first there was one guy, then there was another guy. And it was a very, uh, at least as presented to the public, a, a very, not very professional investigation. One of the, the lead investigators, I believe, I believe his name was Lambert. He didn't approve of the investigation. He didn't improve, approve of the way the FBI was running it. And he subsequently left the FBI, tried to get employment elsewhere. And the FBI started messing with him. And that story is also told in the book. We did a book, uh, Hank Alberelli's A Terrible Mistake about Frank Olson, who was at Fort Detrick. And uh, the basic posit there is about how they were uh, experimenting with LSD in, right. in a village in France, and he didn't like what happened, and he talked about it, and so they were worried that he was going to talk more on it, and eventually he got thrown out of a window of a hotel in New York. You know, Chris, um, my concern here is that we now have people dropping like flies from a, a, a virus or a vaccine or possibly other delivery systems as discussed in my book. Uh, and they, 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 they're lost. I mean, as we discussed earlier, you know, people are, are grappling with this coronavirus. I mean, you know, where did it come from? What do you do if you get sick? You know, it's become a national, it's become an international obsession. And my concern here is that people need to become aware of other delivery systems and of the history here. Uh, as you know, I, I was forced to leave the country and uh, that took place in uh, 20, uh, yeah, tw 2008. So, um, and that was timed specifically. I was working in a newspaper, uh, an alternative newspaper in Oregon at that time, and I was making a lot of Public Records Act requests uh, from the city of Medford, Oregon, concerning this possible uh, infrastructure anomaly that could 
very well function as a delivery system for a pandemic. And the police started circling me like sharks. There, there was an awful lot of activity around me at that time. So I left. Um, I've been out of the country since then. But like I said, I'm still standing. And, and my concern at this point in time is what's happening worldwide. What, what's the most revelatory information in your book? I think the book essentially has two thrusts. One is the, the rather relentless uh, disregard that the U.S. has evidenced over decades for uh, international law, local law, uh, the Nuremberg Code, human experimentation. We need to get a, a real understanding of what our country has, has done that could very well have potentially uh, pointed towards a pandemic. That's number one. And number two is the revelation of the existence of other delivery systems, particularly uh, involving infrastructure, which I think is documented pretty thoroughly in the book. And by the way, Chris, thank you. I just want to say thank you so much for publishing the book. I think uh, that we're in a difficult situation and God bless you. No, you're welcome. I mean, that's, I, I, I like books. So what do you want to tell the folks? What, you know, do you have any, any last words or anything here? I would encourage people to start thinking for themselves. Uh, there seems to be uh, as people get more and more overloaded with uh, pandemic information, uh, there seems to be almost a paralysis of will and of objectivity. And I would really encourage people to pick up alternative information to evaluate for themselves and to um, maybe turn off CNN. My, my father, he told me, he says, read it all. He says, you know, read the, read the myths and the disinformation and look at it uh, because you, you learn so much from where they're trying to send you and, and what they aren't telling you. And uh, Jefferson uh, also, he said it a much more uh, flowery way, but basically he said, if, if you do your homework, you know, you, you, it's, uh, it's harder to uh, steer you wrong. Um, and the only way you can find out about some things is to read what somebody else has written. I, I encourage us to, to get past war and, and, and to learn how to uh, live together on this uh, beautiful blue ball uh, spinning through space. So I, I really appreciate you coming on, Janet. I really appreciate your book. Again, any, any last words? Well, just think for yourself. And uh, hopefully, uh, with the amount of information that seems to be coming out now from alternative quarters, uh, we can make an impact in what's happening now. So that's, that's my strongest hope. So think for yourself. Amen and onward. Thank you.